there's a lot of pressure as a parent to, you know, create these overall resilient, contented, fulfilled kids. But there are also great parents out there that raise kids that don't necessarily reflect the fact that they had caring, loving, dedicated parents, and that that's also part of maybe the nature aspect of people, right? So things, shit can happen that's like also not your fault. I don't know if it makes you feel better or it makes you feel worse at times, but you know, you're you're far from the only influence on your child's life. And I have found more and more in my own work is the importance of multiple attachment figures. So having a really strong relationship with your teacher, let's say, for example, is a really strong predictor of children's social, emotional, and even their academic well-being um, when you look all the way through middle school. So this idea, you know, it takes a village, that, that phrase is used so much. Nobody knows what that fucking means, by the way. Right? <laughs> Hi, everyone. Today, we have an incredibly intimidatingly qualified guest on the podcast. Erin O'Connor, who's here with me today, is the director of New York University's Early Childhood Education Program. She's a professor. She holds a doctorate in human development and psychology from the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Ever heard of it? a master's in teaching from Fordham University, and a master's in school psychology from Columbia University. What the fuck? How have you even had time to do this in your life? Erin works with teachers in New York City schools and leads professional development seminars. She's also co-founder of Scientific Mommy, which is now named Your Cooper, and it brings together parents, researchers, teachers around issues of childhood development. Now, Erin, hi. Hi, thank you. That was a very nice introduction. <laughs> well, I didn't say anything nice. I just stated the facts about your incredibly educated mind. Well, I love school. I'd still be in school if my husband hadn't been like, okay, it's time. Gotta make some money. You would? What would you go to school for now? Would it still be related to early childhood education? Yeah, I think I'd, I'd want to know more about like the neuroscience behind it. There's so much cool stuff coming out there. Oh my God. <laughs> I, I admire you. Um, now, I want to start off by asking you about your research and the science behind creating secure attachments with our children, right? Which is like, I feel like in like layman's terms, like how do we make this relationship work so that like they don't hate us and we're not in this like toxic cycle of something and we're not fucking them up for life. So can you tell me like from your research, the top three things that you would consider important in creating a secure attachment with your child? You know, when we think about secure attachment, I've heard it sort of referred to as almost like a, th a thermostat. So you want your child to be like, you know, regulated at the right temperature. And in order to do that, you provide an environment where they can, when they're little babies, come back to you to be regulated when they're not regulated, right? So, you know, they fall on the playground, they can come to you, they can kind of re-regulate their system and feel comfortable then going back and exploring the playground and learning, you know, what they should from the environment. When they're older, it's sort of more of a not to get into sort of the jargon, but it's like this internal working model. So this sort of notion that you have of people who care for you, 
that somebody is there for you when you need them. And you can sort of go back to those memories as well as go back to them, whether it's calling, you know, mom on the phone, dad on the phone, and sort of getting these same feelings of safety and security that allow you to, to regulate yourself. So all that to say, sort of one of the most important things is just a sensitive and responsive environment from when children are little. And that I think um, where people get very anxious about that is it's a sensitive and responsive environment as a whole, right? It doesn't mean like every time you're going to win <laughs> that interaction, right? It's total, we're all human. We're going to lose it at some point, probably when we're interacting with our kids. And that's not going to lead to an insecure attachment. We're talking about sort of this global idea of my sense of responsive to my child's needs. And I think that goes with sort of the second thing, and that's really knowing your child, right? So being sensitive and responsive for one child might look very different for another child, even if they're siblings, let's say. So one child might really need a lot of comforting in a situation whether they are upset, sort of gradual, all based on things like temperament a gradual, you know, sort of release back into the environment in which they felt uncomfortable. Another child, it might be just, you know, quick hug and I'm here for you and they go back. Um, so there's a lot to consider when we think about sensitive and responsive and there's no one size fits all, uh, which I think is important to think about because sometimes when attachment science is taken out of the true science field of the, the science of it, um, we come up with these ideas of this is exactly what you should do to create a secure attachment. And that doesn't often work because um, we have to consider the child. And then I would say the third one is one that has come out less from sort of research that's, um, you know, been done historically, but um, really there's the mattering movement which I'm sure people have heard of Jennifer Wallace. Um, she has, I've new- never heard of it. Okay. So she has a new book out never enough, um, which I would highly recommend. And it's part of this movement about mattering. So it's this idea that what children really need to feel is that they matter. And how we, we show that is through you know, a myriad of different ways, um, but showing that they matter to the family, that their contributions matter to the family, that they matter to you. And I think that's going to be sort of one of the next things that people look at in terms of attachment and that idea of even from when you're little, understanding that you matter in, um, you know, in the family and that you matter to your caregiver. Mm, that's really interesting to think about in terms of like when I'm applying that to my own kids, but this never enough thing, I, the, all the things that you're saying make total sense in terms of what would be um, important to helping a child like develop securely, whatever, however the hell we talk about this, what the, what the fuck is the word? What, is, what are we, what's the goal here? What, I don't know. We're all messed up anyway. Right. right. So <laughs> a part of what makes me has always made me anxious in terms of parenting research and advice or whatever is that I might acknowledge that I've been doing things incorrectly or here's this new thing, this new concept that comes along and like, have I been putting enough focus on that concept? Like, oh, your role in this family is important and you're enough and like all whatever that message, right? Because this is now, I had not heard that one. I think that's like, it makes sense. That's an important thing to reiterate to your kids. But what about, is it is it too late at some point 
what is the deal with that? It's never too late. And I think that's what's so important, right? When we think, you know, there's been a big push, which I think is great. The zero to three movement really sort of putting sort of, you know, on the on the map, the importance of high quality early education, supports for parents. But I think the only downside to that is that we got really fixated on like what happens between zero and three then you're done <laughs> and you've sort of like, you know, set the path for your child's life. Whereas if you look at research, right, development is dynamic and it's occurring all the time. And even attachment is dynamic. So you can be atta- securely attached at three and not securely attached at seven. So I think what's important to think about is that it's this constant process, right? And that children are developing and parents are developing at the same time. Um, and, you know, Carol Dweck has this all this work on growth mindset when we think about children and academics and right this idea that like I can change my intelligence isn't static but I think it's the same way with parenting right having sort of a parenting growth mindset is so important that I can change as a parent and my children can change as children barring you know the you know very very um extreme there's nothing that's going to you know set a child on this trajectory that's going to be negative because, oh, I didn't show them that they didn't matter enough, which I would argue to say you probably actually have been doing that. You just haven't realized you've been doing it. But let's say you weren't. <laughs> it wouldn't be too late. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's also one of those things that you think about as a parent or like that there's a lot of pressure as a parent to, you know, create these. I I um, struggle not to use the word happy, right, because it's not like that's not supposed to be the goal per se in life, like happiness isn't a real thing. That's just like a state of being at times. Right. But overall resilient, contented, you know, fulfilled in life in, in lots of ways, but that there are also great parents out there that raise kids that don't necessarily reflect the fact that they had caring, loving, dedicated parents. And that that's also part of maybe the nature aspect of people, right? So things shit can happen. That's like also not your fault. Totally. And to think that you're not the only, as sometimes, um, I don't know if it makes you feel better or it makes you feel worse at times, but you know, you're, you're far from the only influence on your child's life. Right. And I think that's also something else to consider that um, there's the environment and then there are influences other than parenting too, that, you know, we can, we can think about and talk about, but um, it's not all on you to create this resilient, you know, intelligent <laughs> um, individual that there are a lot of factors at play. Um, and I think, you know, sort of going back, you were saying the three things about um that attachment is something that I have found more and more in my own work is the importance of multiple attachment figures. So, um, you know, having a really strong relationship with your teacher, let's say, for example, is a really strong predictor of children's social, emotional, and even their academic well-being um, when you look all the way through middle school. So this idea, you know, it takes a village that that phrases you so much, but uh, you know. nobody knows what that fucking means, by the way. Right. Yeah, I'm just always like, what, what, who are the, in the village? What are the people in the village? Totally. <laughs> I don't live in a village. I, you know, <laughs> where, are they, where are my people? <laughs> yeah. But yeah. So like, 
teachers, coaches, grandparents, aunts and uncles, like that's who you're referring to. Totally. And I think, you know, for parents in general, but moms in particular, there's so much pressure, especially those early years, right? Like, oh my gosh, it's all on me. So also sort of learning how to, you know, love and interact with somebody who's maybe has a different style than mom does or dad does. And that's a good thing, right? Because throughout life, we meet people with all different sorts of styles of interacting. So uh, I think that's another area too, where attachment research has sort of, you know, growing. Um, but this idea of it's not just one attachment figure that's going to have this, you know, forever lasting effect on your life, right? There are multiple people that can and should. <laughs> what a relief. Um, but also like, I think that there's this pressure or hope on moms always that they are that person for their kids that like they desperately want their kids to continue to love and hold them in high regard because you put so much love and effort and time into their lives, especially like in these early dates. I mean, and beyond, of course, like all the time, you never stop being a mother. Right. But if, if, it gets to the place where, you know, I'm sure a lot of moms of teens are feeling like I'm not that person for my child right now. And this really hurts. Or did I fuck this up? Is this my fault? Like, what do you think about like that sort of sentiment? It's really hard for mothers. So I, I, I just keep thinking, you know, the, the book, The Giving Tree, right? Yes. Where the tree just gives and gives and gives until there's nothing left to give. I remember like reading that with my, my, my now older one <laughs> when she was little um, and just like crying. And I wasn't really even sure why I was crying, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. but it was that idea that, right. Like, I think the idea that my child's going to get older and like, I'm not going to be able to provide in the way that I was when she was little and there's only so much I can give and I think getting at the sentiment like you're talking about what which is that at each of these transition points it can be very hard as a parent right then when I talk about transition points I'm thinking about like entry into preschool entry into elementary school middle school high school college you know if you look at their research that's a point where you see a lot more sort of dips um, in terms of or increases in sort of emotional, um, you know, depression and, and dips in happiness, because there is this like feeling like, oh, my gosh, I'm not sort of my child isn't turning to me as much anymore as they were before. And I also am not experiencing the world with them completely as maybe I was before. So stuff's going on and I have to kind of rely on them to provide me with information about what's going on in their lives. So. I think that is a really difficult point um, as a parent, and there's a lot of research that would show that it's a difficult point as a parent, especially as a mom. Um, I have two girls, um, so like Lisa Demore's work, although she looks at boys and girls, but um, especially her earlier work looked a lot at girls and how in order for them to sort of have their own identity, they have to pull away from mom a little bit. And I felt that, especially in middle childhood, and I, it was really hard for me. <laughs> Her research, you know, shows how they kind of come back, right? So it's just like, okay, who am I? Okay, I've kind of figured out who I am, not just sort of an extension of mom, and now I can come back to mom. Um, And sort of knowing that that is out there has helped a lot. Um, And it's not just Lisa's work. A lot of work shows that, um, that kids have to sometimes, you know, pull away a little bit to come back. 
I want to go into your story personally a little bit now because you have a really unique uh, perspective on parenting. Uh, so, Erin, fire away. Tell us your, your parenting setup and story. Well, so I have two girls, as I've mentioned. One is almost 15, which kind of is like blowing my mind right now, actually. And the other is three and a half. So um, we have a nice age span, um, you know, sort of a toddler and a teen in the house right now, which makes for never a dull moment. There is always excitement. But my older one, um, I had sort of right after I finished grad school, sort of the traditional, you know, had her, came home, was, was with her. Um, my younger one uh, is adopted, and she was born seven weeks early um, and had to spend time in NICU in Tennessee. She was born the Friday that COVID really sort of shut down New York City. Uh, and she was also born before we were fully certified to adopt because she was born so early. So the situation was very different than I expected it to be. We expected to be there at the birth. Uh, you know, going back to I'm an attachment researcher, I really felt like I wanted to be there. I wanted to hold her. I wanted to do all these things right at the beginning. Uh, and none of that happened. Um, what actually happened was I made my older one leave her phone at home and we went for a long walk on March 13th. That's when my, my little one was born. And I always have my phone with me and I'm not a great example. Uh, <laughs> I was trying to be a good example and we got home to 53 text messages and I was like, wow, wow. Okay. So we're doing this thing. So driving down to Tennessee, um, you know, flights weren't an option kind of then uh, during the pandemic, um, packing everything up, getting there and not being able to see um, our youngest because we did not have all the paperwork done. So not only was she early, she was in a NICU um, and we weren't able to go in and, and see her. So we're, it was uh, six days um, after she was born that I was first able to hold her, which was, again, just so, not something that, you know, I sort of had planned. Uh, I think something that was beautiful, though, about the situation is her biological mother did stay with her in the NICU. Um, which was amazing. And then we actually, so there was, you could only have one visitor at a time because of COVID in the NICU. So the NICU did something which I thought was very nice and they made an exception and they allowed the biological mom um, to hold um, our daughter with my husband at first. He went up. Um, so they said, okay, you can have two people, but you can't have three. So I was like, okay, let my husband go up first. He held the baby with um, her bio mom. And then he came down and I went up and held her. Like I could have either let my sort of attachment, I think, focus and research uh, work against me or for me or for us in that situation, because it was like, okay, you know, all these things in theory, right? Sensitive, sensitivity and responsivity during those, you know, first um, couple weeks, couple hours, you know, um, is so important. And we weren't even there. Um, but then I also knew that, you know, it's actually sort of this umbrella concept, right? And it's the consistency of being sensitive and responsive. And it's a lifetime of being sensitive and responsive. And what happens during those first few days, if, if it's not the ideal scenario, which it isn't for so many people, right? You know, you have C-sections, you have all these different things that can happen that might prevent you from being able to hold your baby right away. And that is not going to have a long-term impact, negative impact 
um, on your child. Is that experience what makes you um, most interested in the neuroscience piece by any chance? Like the like closing of synapses. I don't know what I'm saying right now, by the way. I'm just made, I just made that up. It like totally does. But like, you would have been such a good psychologist, Caitlin. I think that's your next calling. You think so? I do. Um, in all my spare time. Um, <laughs> but like, is that why like you're just wondering what happens after birth specifically that is related to secure attachment? It is. And I think, you know, that the, um, there is some research on that. And I think there's also so much research showing about, you know, the first five years in terms of neural development too. So again, that idea of like, yes, there are critical periods, but it's like, you know, little humans aren't as fragile as we (laughs) sometimes I think we, I mean, as they appear, right. I mean, they are, they're helpless, but you know, there's, there's the opportunity for resilience and there's the opportunity for, um, for growth, even in situations that might not be ideal. Knowing your experience researching secure attachments in early childhood development and having a biological child and an adopted child who's now three and a half. So you're, I'm sure, seeing a lot of real personality. And I feel like at that point, you kind of really do get a grasp on who kids are. What do you feel like differs from real life versus the science in your personal experience? Well, it's funny. Like I noticed the girls are very similar in many respects, which I find just interesting. Like my husband always jokes. He's like, yeah, it's the environment. They're both high maintenance. It's, it's you coming through. I'm like, thank you. Because <laughs> <laughs> both of them are a little bit on the higher maintenance side. <laughs> but it's interesting too, to me, like, you know, you talk about attachment. So I'm an attachment researcher. I had, you know, my first one, my first child biologically sort of quote unquote did all the stuff that, you know, you're supposed to. And um, she had severe separation anxiety when she started um, pre-K, same pre-K that my little one is at now. So bad that I had to sit in front of the classroom on a little chair. <laughs> so she would know I was there during the day all the way until after Halloween. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So like pretty severe separation anxiety, um, which would say, oh, she's not securely attached, right? Would be the the <laughs> sort of how you would extrapolate, I guess, from there, which I would argue to say she was securely attached. But this one, on the other hand, is like the model for she just took it on. She ran into the classroom. Bye, mommy. I love you. I miss you. But I like seeing my friends. Bye. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this is so, you know, to me, it's kind of funny, right? Because you know, you do all these things that quote unquote, you're supposed to do to create this child who's confident in the world and who explores and, you know, uses you as this thermostat, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I, I feel like I've done all that. My husband's done all that um, with our little one, but at the beginning we didn't have that opportunity. Right. And I think so much of it just comes down to sort of the environment that you provide, right? Like when you can provide it. I think what's also been interesting sort of raising these two girls is just thinking about temperament, right? Like kids come into the world, I think, a certain way often. And, you know, sort of weaving in the temperament work I've done, we've even shown that like temperament isn't that stable over time. So I think sometimes parents get very concerned if their child is a little bit reserved or, you know, 
shy, withdrawn, whatever you want to call it. Um, when they're younger, sometimes, you know, initially in a classroom setting, it's like, oh my gosh, like, it's my child going to be sort of like looked over because they're not, you know, participating or they're not. And a lot of the time children just, they do change over time. They become more, you know, comfortable in their environment and then they, they become more willing to dive in. So I think, again, just that idea of, you know, this, notion of development and growth is is so important. Yeah. And I completely agree with you on everybody's born with like their own temperament. And because um, I, I really see that in my kids are each very different and they do change. Like you said, I think a lot of the things that I've worried about at certain times in my kids' lives have are, like changed already. Like, and sometimes within a couple of weeks, one thing that I'm worried about just isn't a thing anymore. We worry. And I think for better or worse with all this information out there, it's like we worry even more. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> and you know, I think that there's probably this every sort of thing, like everything that sort of happens in trends, it generally generationally are sort of an answer or maybe an overcompensation to something that didn't used to happen, right? And then they might also cause problems in the other direction. So Always just trying to find that balance is seems like the key. It seems to me like if you look at the research, it's like every two to three years, there's like a different thing that's the focus. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like in terms of parenting styles or, um, you know, whatever. It's six months to start solids. And then, oh, no, it's four months to start solids. But then now we're starting to go back to six. You know, like. Yeah. And I, uh, that that is something that sort of pisses me off because I feel like then there is this like agreement within the, no offense, like the scientific doctoral community or whatever. They're like, no, this is the fucking way. This is the way. And we're sure of it for now. This is what I feel like I always, this is my message. What I like to go back to all the time is that you really truly know what's best for your child. Like you're the one who can really read the situation. You're on the ground, boots on the ground there, you know? Um, and that you, what, at the end of the day, you have to trust your gut. I totally agree. And that's why I think that this whole kind of idea of mattering is going to maybe like be the next area where really we look at with attachment research, because you can only sort of allow your child to know that they matter if you are paying attention to your child and recognizing what they're doing, right? So it's like you have to be boots on the ground and you have to trust that like, okay, I know what my child's interested in and I know what my child is doing and I know that this is going to be best for them, even if maybe, you know, some research article suggests that they should, I don't know. I always think of like starting kindergarten and redshirting with kindergarten, right? I think that's such a you know, you know your child sometimes and whether they're ready or they're not ready for kindergarten and um, having confidence in your own sort of read of your child versus like, okay, what does the, what does research say, say about it? And, and not even just beyond that, like all of the focus on the child and the child's development and stuff, but also what works for you and what fits in your life the right way. Right. So that like you being happy and you, and things you know, being convenient for you in ways it matters too, right? Because that affects your mentality, your mental health. So not to just be like living, breathing, dying by certain models that are put out there that people think that you should go by, right? 
Well, I think what's interesting, like this is a long time ago when I was in grad school, but one of the first studies sort of I, I worked on was looking at the impacts of childcare and maternal employment on children's outcomes. Because, you know, sort of just to date myself, it was like back in like the childcare kind of wars where it was like, okay, you know, is it bad for kids to be away from their primary caregiver for more than a certain number of hours per week? Because then the primary caregiver is not going to be able to read their their cues and they're not going to be able to be sensitive responsive. And there was kind of this argument, right, um, about, okay, somebody should be, be at home. So what the research found was that it didn't, it wasn't whether you worked outside of the home or didn't work outside of the home. It wasn't whether you were in X hour, number of hours of childcare, whether it was group care, whether it was nanny care. It really came down to, again, the sensitivity and responsivity of the of the parent. But what predicted that the best was their satisfaction with their choice around employment. So, you know, for those who are lucky enough to have the choice, right, um, it really sort of, I think, speaks to there's no one right way. And what works for you is probably the right way for your family, right? Yeah, totally. I had a a family member recently say something that really struck me and I actually posted about it, which was that uh, kids can't truly be happy. That's the word they used. I, I try to not use that word happy all the time, but whatever, go yeah, with me. <laughs> kids can't really truly be happy if their parents are unhappy, you know, so that your happiness really matters and your satisfaction and your sense of fulfillment and only you can really determine what makes you happiest. So, and children are great at reading, even as early as, you know, some studies show like one, one years of age, you know, children can pick out when you're, what you're saying doesn't match the emotion you're feeling. So it's like, if you're sad or you're frustrated or whatever, and you say, no, 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 everything's great. I'm, you know, mommy's happy. They, they can totally like pick up on those nonverbal cues and, um, so there's, there's kind of no trick in them, right? <laughs> I mean, there's no tricking. My, I don't try to trick my kids. So I'm like, I'm stressed out right now. All right, guys. So give me a minute. I need some time here. I can't with your nonsense right now. Yep. <laughs> but that's good. You're modeling for them sort of, okay, listen, like there's a time at which you just have to step back for a moment and compose yourself and, you know, yeah, regulate yeah, yourself so you can regulate them. <laughs> That day of the month where your your PMS rage hits and you're just like, everybody's driving me crazy. I want to light the house on fire. Yep. Mom, yeah. mommy, mom, mom, mommy. <laughs> Watch this. Watch this. <gasps> <laughs> totally. <laughs> Thank you so much. That was a very uh, enlightening and useful conversation. Your personal experiences. You're such a valuable source of information and honesty. And I really appreciate you. Oh, thank you so much. Well, you know, I'm a huge fan of yours. <laughs> so nice chatting with you. And we'll have to do this again sometime. That sounds good to me. Bye, Erin. Bye. Thanks so much for being here. For more information on today's episode, visit my show notes. And if you enjoyed it, leave me a review. Now get yourself a snack.